0: Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Dan Porter, CEO at Overtime. How's it going, Dan?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: Sure. Thanks for joining me. So for those out there who might not be as familiar with you, can we just dive into your professional background?
1: Yeah, in other words, like I'm incredibly ancient and I was once (laughs) relevant, but I'm going to tell you why I might still be relevant. Sure. Um, Yes. So uh, in a nutshell, I, you know, probably uncharacteristically to most guests, I spent the first third of my career actually in education. Mm -hmm. I was a public school teacher uh, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I taught high school. I was on the founding team of the Teach for America program and was president of that and then ran another organization where I started early charter schools. Super interesting, obviously informed my interest in young people and culture in communications. You know, second, third of my career, decide how I wanted to do something really different, kind of got into the internet, started the first, uh, along with two other guys, the first online ticketing company called TicketWeb. Mm-hmm. Uh, three years later, sold that for $40 million to Ticketmaster. Uh, went to work for Richard Branson and then got in the games business, which is why we were talking with what was then called I'm in Like With You, then called OMG Pop. And eventually, as the CEO, personally made the, the game Draw Something, which was downloaded a quarter of a billion dollars and sold that company to Zynga for $200 million. Last kind of third of my career uh, more deeper into sports and entertainment, end up being the, the head of digital at Endeavor, William Morris Endeavor, the big talent agency. Uh, left there in 2016 for the last five years, have been building a massive sports brand for the next generation, 50 plus million followers. And about six months ago, announced the launch of kind of like an entirely brand new basketball league uh, with players who were 17, 18 years old getting paid.
0: Got it. And did you play sports growing up? Where does your interest in sports come from?
1: I did play sports. I don't want to oversell my (laughs) legendary prowess. I went to private school, which meant I got got to actually play. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I played soccer. I played baseball my whole life. I was nothing special, you know, average I never wanted to work in sports, Mm -hmm. I I would say I'm like a middle of the road. I'm from Philadelphia. I love sports teams from Philadelphia. That's what you do when you're from a city like Philadelphia. I went to the Super Bowl when the Eagles went to Super Bowl. So I I love sports, but I, I say, like, I love music and I love food. There are lots of things I like. It just happened by nature of what I was doing when I was at Endeavor that I kind of saw this massive opening in the sports space where, you know, you've got this kind of decline of linear television, this aging up of the sports audience, young people kind of watching clips on Instagram. And I was like, I knew enough about sports to be taken seriously. But to me, it was it was a business opportunity. If I would seen that business opportunity in other verticals and I felt like I knew enough about those verticals, I would have gone after that too. But for sure, like if we're in the office in the hypothetical non COVID mm-hmm. office, people can go way deep about positionless basketball and yeah. various 3-2 lineups. And I'm, I'm just like out of my league on that.
0: <laughs> That's fair. I also was very average at sports, uh, but grew up playing soccer, played it like my whole life. And I'm a pretty diehard NBA fan. I doubt I would be able to talk sports with some of the folks on your team, but you know I'm, I'm probably average to above average as far as not. Well, I think there. what's
1: interesting, Who you told me, who's your team? The Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that that team that has no fans that nobody likes. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, not
1: I, what I think is interesting is that I do think a lot about sports fandom. And so mm-hmm. if you think about it, there's like a traditional point of view, which is like, whatever, 30 years ago you were a fan of the team and the city that you lived in, and you probably Mm -hmm. actually had a high likelihood of living in the same city that you grew up in to some extent. Right. Um, I know there's a lot of migration and and, and other things like that, but it it wasn't that complicated. And, and, and you go now, and you've got basketball, which is so player driven Mm -hmm. that I could tell you that, You know, I'm not an OKC fan, but I like Shy and I want to watch because I think he's swaggy as hell and and super interesting. You know, and I I talk to kids who play Madden and they're Saints fans because the Saints uniforms are dope. And like the whole idea of fandom in terms of your ability to. Decide why you're a fan. Number one, to decide how you express that. Like, do you mm-hmm. change your profile picture? Do you not? Are you fluid? Do you have another team that you like? I, I feel like all of those changes in the nature of fandom are so interesting, and to me, almost like as a cultural anthropologist, I think a lot about that as I build a sports entity. And and even if you think about what we did overtime, like I tried to make people love overtime, like. Like it was a brand, like mm-hmm. they love the Lakers or Nike or anything else like that. And I know people who drink Coke who will never drink Pepsi, yeah. and vice versa, and who are Lakers fans who could would could never like it. I could personally never like a team from New England. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it's 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 super interesting how the human mind works in and all the psychology around that. And by the way, that's that's very similar to how I I thought about games. Like what Mm -hmm. makes you pick something up? What makes you want to keep playing it? Are you competitive or you're cooperative? And, and so all of the things that I do really kind of come down to human behavior.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. One of the reasons actually why I am such a, a big NBA fan is because I feel like they are ahead of all the other leagues, just as far as making the focus on the players. Right. So even back in the day, you know, I grew up in upstate New York, Rochester, uh, so there isn't really a team there, but the Toronto Raptors are actually probably the closest team, you know, and then there's, there were the New York teams, Yeah, but because I loved Kobe Bryant so much, he's my all-time favorite player, you know, I naturally became a Lakers fan uh, and just, just followed it uh, ever since. I was going to ask you this later, but since we dove into the NBA a bit, who's going to win the championship this year?
1: I mean, the problem is it's so injury driven, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean... KD put the Nets on his back, but nobody had in their thing that like Giannis was going to fall on Kyrie and like yeah. Harden was going to hit his hamstring. I'm going to go with the Nets. That's fair. I, I obviously I, have I live, to go I live eight blocks from the stadium. KD's an investor, although you know Melo, who's an investor and one of my favorite people, is on the Lakers now. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. There's so many variables between now and then that it's it's really. It's hard to say and it's, it's interesting. I've, I've been doing a lot of work in sports betting and it's interesting to see like all the lines and how they change and all of a sudden like the Lakers will go trade for Russ or sign Russ and it's like all the numbers and the lines change and they go up and down. So I'm sure that they all have the Lakers is probably the, the, the closest thing. But, you know, and it's interesting too, you've got the two teams that might make it there and they're probably among the two oldest teams.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about an earlier part of your career. So, you know, you mentioned you were heavily involved in Teach for America and you actually spent quite a bit of time teaching. And I would argue that's a pretty uncommon background for someone who, you know, for the most of the balance of your career worked for and or started, you know, quite successful for-profit businesses. And so what made you want to make that transition?
1: Into teaching or out of teaching?
0: Out of teaching. But I'm also curious, why did you start teaching?
1: I would say I kind of got into it accidentally. And that's probably true for almost everything I did. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I never tutored people in college. I wasn't, I mean, my parents were college professors, but, you know, I was kind of, it was like the late eighties and I was like, graduated from college and I loved music and I played music and I worked at the radio station and I wasn't really going to be a professional musician. And I think like a lot of people out of college, I mean, look, there's really ends up being two buckets. Like those people are so focused and they interview and they get that job. And they're like, I want to be a banker, a lawyer, consultant, whatever they want to do, or an engineer. Mm-hmm. And they have a skill. And the rest of us who just kind of are like, I, I, I don't really know. And and you know I kind of messed around the music industry a little bit and literally a friend of mine said to me one of my former roommates from college hey there's a teacher shortage in New York and we're all going to go teach all you have to do is take this test and you'll get hired and you make like $24,000 a year and I was like I could totally do that and it just seemed like I don't know it just seemed kind of out of the box and crazy and I love young people and I like talking and I knew some shit, I thought, I obviously <laughs> didn't really, but so I just kind of did it. And then I got into it and it was just, the young people were powerful. The stuff that I learned was really powerful. Like, I still think now today, you know, if, if you think about race, we talk about, you know, black folks and white folks mm-hmm. and this and that. And and I mean, it was even more simplified back then. And I got into the school and I was like, you know, the, the West Indians, Hated the Haitians. They both hated, they were both hated by, you know, the Black folks who were born in Brooklyn. All three of them hated the Dominicans who hated the Puerto Ricans. And I was like, oh my God, the world is so fucking complicated. Like my school was a a bilingual school for Haitian Creole. And it was just like, you just get out there and you're like, oh, the stuff that I read about in the newspaper, both about, you know, race, class, all of the issues you get in there with all of these different young people. You know, I had, you know, kids who are homeless and kids who had two parents, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of different stuff. Kids who moved here in high school, grew up in Jamaica, who got hit on the knuckles by nuns. If they didn't learn how to read who were at a very different level than kids elsewhere. And yet it, you know, had, had other deficits. And I was, it just was really as kind of just a naive 23 year old it it really opened my eyes to a lot of things kind of being on the front lines and also kind of ignited this this passion for young people and it led to this whole kind of 10 year career and i think i got to the end of that and did i change the world i definitely did not change the world maybe i made a gazillionth of a tiny percent impact But I just thought I was like, I want to do something different. I just, Mm -hmm. it was like I had exhausted myself in that whole area. And I was getting into more and more micro. And I guess I was mature enough to realize that I was a little burned out and I wanted to do something different. And, you know, that's kind of how I got in and kind of how I got out.
0: Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned Jamaica. My mom is actually from Jamaica um, and my dad's from Ghana. And, you know, I didn't expect to go in this direction, but one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I thought this would be going so many great directions. And it's just great that you mentioned this experience, right? How it gave you all these different perspectives, right? Given my parents are from different countries, I grew up in with the perspective that, you know, this quote-unquote American culture to me was different, right? And on the other side of things, so many people who grew up in America, particularly probably in like white communities, tend to think of the world from that perspective and don't necessarily get those other perspectives. Uh, so I think it's just really interesting that you were, you were able to have that experience because it can have such a dramatic
1: impact on someone growing up. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't, I mean, I'll use we loosely, but we don't know anything about the world here. We talk about mm-hmm. African, you talk about French speaking African. You know, I mean, there's 70 languages spoken in Ethiopia alone (laughs) and like all these crazy different histories. And I mean, there are just worlds and worlds and worlds in, in all of those places. And it was funny to me. It was so like I love music and people are like, oh, you know, you're you're going to teach in the schools like your students like rap music? Like mm-hmm. the most generic thing yeah, you could yeah. say. And like my students were way in the dance hall. I mean, I knew more mm-hmm. about Shaba Ranks and like all this other stuff than I did anything else like that. And then right. I went down this rabbit hole and I was like sound systems in Jamaica and like taking records that were other people's songs and like sing over them. And to me, like all those different manifestations of culture, I just thought it was just so cool and mm-hmm. so Interesting, like I'm a nerd, and there was just so much to learn in in so many different ways. And and it was funny, like I was on the subway like 10 years later, and this, you know, kid, but they were probably 28 or 29, Mm -hmm. came up to me on the subway and they were like, yo, Porter. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) you know, and it was like. I never got them to successfully call me Mr. Porter and call me (laughs) Porter by my last name. And I was like, oh, so-and-so, how are you? It's like, oh, yeah, you're my favorite teacher. You know, what any kid says anybody. I was a little bit like calling bullshit (laughs) because what are you going to say? You were my least favorite teacher. I was like, come on, Porter. The Yangtze River, the longest river in China. (laughs) And so that was like my contribution. they had taken my global (laughs) studies class. 10 years later on the subway, they remembered one thing. There was a very long river in China and they remembered its name. And I was like, I'll, I'll take that it was yeah funny
0: no that. that's good yeah go, you know going back to the African comments you know I can't tell you how many times growing up like I would tell people my dad's from Ghana and they would ask me quote do you speak African and it's
1: just wow like,
0: have you ever spoken to anyone who like isn't from your community you know like it's it's a real thing that's an experience uh, it is it's
1: actually why I love the world cup too right it's Ghana mm-hmm. the black stars
0: uh yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah so I lo- I mean the all the teams. I mean, all the European teams are so different. The German team in the yeah. World Cup, and all, the, and the Brazilians and the Argentinians, and now you've got Ivory Coast and mm-hmm. Ghana. It's like it's just. It's like I don't know. I don't watch a ton of soccer, but I always watch the World Cup because mm-hmm. it's like you really get this crazy you know deep dive into all of these you know different cultures you know the the, the, Sp- the emotional spanish players we're going to lose once again and the self-hating british players and <laughs> everything else like that it's it's so cool
0: yeah are you still involved with teach for america in any capacity
1: i am not involved with it at mm-hmm. all i am a college professor this is my fifth year teaching i teach social entrepreneurship at nyu and i definitely have students who apply to Teach for America and I talk to alumni but I don't I don't have anything to do with the program
0: sure. right now that's fair okay so moving forward are you a gamer today and were you a gamer at the time of your own Gpop days
1: so it's funny so I'm old so I'm like that kind of person who tells you a story like I remember when we got <laughs> Pong and Atari I was a huge like Pinball nerd. Mm-hmm. Like we had pinball machines at the bowling alley, and I loved pinball. I kind of got to college, and I mean, there weren't, I mean, this was kind of even pre Game Boy. So there was not, there was not a lot of gaming or otherwise. And when I got to OMG Pop, I was a medium gamer, but mm-hmm. to me, mobile gaming was so interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because especially in the earlier days of the iPhone. And I would argue sometimes when you play sports games now, it was this real transference of essentially like joysticks to the mobile like touch environment. You know, I I always say like, sometimes people will show me a mobile mobile app and I'm like, this was built by somebody who's like a website designer. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel mobile. And I think when you flung the Angry Birds and Fruit Ninja, like those games showed you like, oh my God, this is a totally different form factor. And half the people are gonna make games like that ignore the form factor. And half the people are gonna make games that totally take advantage of the form factor. And I think for me, that was interesting. And then I'm not like, I don't have the greatest like hand-eye coordination (laughs) I'm like, I'm an average player. I can, Mm -hmm. you know, I can play an FPS. I can do all those. But to me, it was less about like being obsessed about gaming. And to me, it was more about like the psychology. I just would play any game until I would hit a game. Like, I remember the very first time I played Fortnite, you know, I I, I parachuted down. I I lost in like two minutes. I was with (laughs) my nephew. And I immediately was like, I want to do that again. Yeah. And to me, I was like, before I even did it again, I was like, whoa, okay, like, <laughs> why did I want to do that again? And like, what was interesting about that? Yeah. And I've played tons of games where I'm just like, this is boring or I'm not into it or I don't want to do it again or anything else like that. And so so to me, like the psychology of how you get sucked in, the storytelling, the creation, that almost is, is the game in and of itself to some extent mm-hmm. for me, ultimately.
0: And so I'm not sure if you still spend much time thinking about the gaming industry, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this. You know, maybe you don't have a ton. If Draw Something were to be created today, do you think it would still be able to achieve significant success in today's gaming market?
1: Um, It's a good question. So I don't think it would be as big. Mm-hmm as it was 10 years ago. And that has nothing to do with the game type and more about the macro environment. So at the time you may draw something, the only other game that was social was Words with Friends. Every mm-hmm. single game was a single player game. And everybody was like, the iPhone is the Game Boy. And I'm just going to make games that people play by themselves. And the only social element was the leaderboard. All of a sudden, you made this kind of vastly, vastly simplified game that could be played by anyone that was highly social. And I'll never forget somebody telling me a lot of how a game grows is how it's built into game. And I remember somebody told me, yeah, this guy went to high school with, like, hit me up on Gchat. (laughs) Like, that was a thing. And said, like, yo, you got to download this game and play with me. And I hadn't even talked to him for Mm -hmm. four or five years there's zero chance that would happen now. Yeah. I I would argue at that time, like we were probably the first game ever to pop off on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like people were sharing drawings that they made on Instagram. And I think between the very light social game environment that's on Snap that they've done a good job with, I think the fact that all of the social applications themselves are so much more social, so they're filling a need, FaceTime, all of these other things. I think that the social element is so much more saturated that it would have been a great game, but I'm not sure it would have been as big. I'd almost argue that you look at the way we were able to grow, and a lot of that came on Instagram, and a little bit of that came on Twitter. You look at the way that Farmville and some of those early games were able to grow on the back of Facebook. I'd say the only thing is like, I don't know, is there a game that's blown up on TikTok or because of TikTok?
0: I don't think so. I hope not because I just said no and I want to be exposed, but I don't believe so. I'm actually not on TikTok, believe it or not.
1: Yeah, you, you gotta be on TikTok. <laughs> TikTok's the future. Yeah. But um, so so I think all of those things, like those are things you don't control. Mm-hmm. You can make the best game in the world, but you know, is there a time or a place? And and I think about other games like HQ. Yeah, like there was a moment when that popped out, and it happened to be between Thanksgiving and Christmas mm-hmm. when a lot of people were together with their families. Nobody had ever done live trivia and everything seemed boring comparing mm-hmm. to HQ. And it was funny because the first time that I played it, I just was like so angry at myself <laughs> that I hadn't thought of it. I was like, this is fucking amazing and yeah. incredibly disruptive. And probably the eighth time I was like, this is going to burn out. Like, there's <laughs> no way people can every night play this. And and, and honestly, one of the things that I want to say killed, but really altered the growth of draw something was people were saying i have too many games in my queue too many people are trying it Mm -hmm. feels like work and i that was like a huge thing i took away and and i spent a lot of time trying to build lightweight essentially fantasy sports games yeah i'm a big fantasy football player and 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 we have an app at overtime and it's very focused on kind of lightweight pools and lightweight Mm -hmm. fantasy and to me that was this massive learning like if it feels like work then you're going to hit a wall. And that's definitely true on mobile. Like, look, people grind and wow. And they yeah. grind on other games, but those are primarily desktop games. And you know, right. for those two hours you're going to work, if you open and you're like, Oh, I have six things I have to <laughs> do and I have to get back like that. And everything else like that. I wonder if people end up feeling that, like, I remember I used to, I used to have a snap streak with my niece and I would literally just get a picture of the floor mm-hmm. and I'd be like, what the fuck? And she's like, I have like 200 things. I just take something and I just tap it, tap it, tap it, tap it. It's just work. Yeah. Like, and, and those are hard to maintain from a game design perspective. No,
0: that's a great point. I've definitely gone through periods of time. For example, I, at times I'm a big Scrabble mobile player. And yeah. sometimes it's just taking up too much time. So I have to literally uninstall the app and <laughs> just come back to it like months later. Yeah.
1: And by the way, like, I don't think that's the worst thing in the mm-hmm. sense like well, it's very hard to maintain the energy that a game gives you ad infinitum like I think yeah. league is an incredible game because there are people who remain equally as passionate about league like mm-hmm. 5 years after playing it but especially lighter weight mobile social games like it's really really fun and then you're done. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not cutting any watermelons as part of Fruit Ninja. But the yeah. first time I did it, I was like, that was amazing. My kids were like throwing up real fruit <laughs> and trying to like, you know, attack it. But it's okay that maybe six months later it pops up and I'm like, oh, I redownload it and I get that energy from right, it right. again. It's it's hard to mend it out. And, and we're all segmented into kind of like, casual gamers i play on the subway versus like it's not an accident that you know probably the average age of the Fortnite player is like 14 years old Mm -hmm. an insane amount of free time you know social but you can't drive yet so you're looking (laughs) for opportunities to connect with people online and, and and stuff like that whereas like I would argue there's a lot of people who play Call of Duty who are like 25, 26, Mm -hmm. like still connecting with their friends from college. And I think there's elements of those game design around how long a session is, how long a game is. I mean, if you play Dota 2, you like got to commit to like a 45 minute session and they're mm-hmm. literally game designers who are like, I want to make a mobile, but it's only 12 minutes because yeah. they understand like all those things. Now, I mean, you know, immediately your, your, your total available audience is shrunk by people who can commit to 45 minutes, you know, at a time. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you ever think about making games today or is that just uh, a past
1: chapter in your life? I think a lot about betting, fantasy sports, and other ty- types of games that are essentially tied to the real world like to me i spend actually a lot of time thinking about march madness and mm-hmm. the bracket because there's something about the a lot of the problem on on a lot of those games is like you need to put a lot in to get a lot out and you need to grind every day. And sports betting is different because it's like the stock market. You can make money or not, but there's something amazing about spending an hour to fill out your bracket. Mm-hmm. And then it's like all of the gameplay is like, you don't have to actually do anything, you know? And you're like, oh, I'm winning, I'm losing, mm-hmm. I'm following the game, but you've already done all the work. And and most of the time the balance is is out of whack. So I, I spend a lot of time, you know, think about sports games. I used to think a lot more about social games Mm -hmm. and I'd come up with amazing ideas. And then I would think, you know, there's no reason Snap just doesn't do that already. They already have 250 million people with their cameras open Mm -hmm. and and, and everything else like that. And I'll go into the app and it's like, oh, there's an endless runner. Oh, there's the 20th iteration of a tower defense game.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I'm a huge uh, NBA FanDuel fan, actually. Uh, I know it's probably relatively niche. Nobody plays NBA fantasy, but I agree with you completely. It's so engaging. It's probably the one thing that has kept me like most engaged as a fan. Uh, you know, even if I'm playing
1: for just a couple dollars, it's so well, engaging. It's a simu- Well, also it's a simulation. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm at dinner and I say, oh, that guy's on my team. Mm -hmm. And my wife's like, you don't actually own a team. (laughs) And I remind people, I'm like, fantasy is a simulation game where you are a team owner. It is The Sims, Yeah, you know, it's just done in a sheet. And I think there's an element to those games where sometimes you get so granular into like daily fantasy where you're Mm -hmm. making all of these picks and you're entering a ton of different picks and stuff like that. And you lose that simulation aspect of Mm -hmm. it. And I think that aspect, whether I'm a fucking druid or an elf or I'm an owner of Dan Porter's team, (laughs) I think those types of simulations matter. And so you can tell like I've overthought this. So I put a ton Mm -hmm. of my game design energy into really thinking about all variations of fantasy, daily fantasy pools, betting, all of those things, because I do think that those... I, I like mass market games. I mm-hmm. like games that are played by a lot of people, and I think there's definitely going to be a lot of innovation there. And look, I think Yahoo, ESPN, as apps for those types of things, FanDuel, DraftKings, mm-hmm. th- they put a lot of time and energy into yeah. that into that innovation there too. And i I think it's I think it's super interesting. And I think we have a generation of fans who wants to be more engaged and who wants to, who wants to play along. And I'd say the last thing I'd say is it's funny because if you play like, like, wow, or Mm -hmm. any of those types of games, the modern version of those games, there's a lot of grinding that goes into those games. I think what's funny about fantasy is There's actually a lot of grinding. It just happens off platform. You like go on the internet, you're like, should I sit or start this play? Or I get like seven different newsletters. And then when I don't know 45 minutes before the game, I'm I'm Googling it. And and you're basically grinding. Like you're basically doing all this work. All the work is off platform as much as they want to show you their breakdown. I'm like, I don't want to read about this player on a platform where every single other person is reading the same piece of data. Um, and so it's, it's super interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's
0: great. That's one of the things too, that I love about it, right? Like you have to find these different sources of
1: information, right? Everyone knows like
0: when LeBron sits, like who his backup is, right? But finding these more nuanced pieces of information that are getting you the edge is exactly the grind and exactly what, uh, what makes it so worth it. So last thing before talking about overtime, you spent some time at WME. Why did you do that? Uh, What were you doing there?
1: totally random kind of almost like teaching like somebody introduced me to Ari Emanuel Mm who's the CEO. Ari said who are some interesting people I should talk to in tech. Mark Mm -hmm. Andreessen said oh you should talk to this guy Dan Porter. I met Ari. I didn't really understand what WME or CA or any of these big talent agencies were. We had a conversation and I think perhaps because I wasn't looking for a job and I didn't really understand what they were doing you know, he, he was super interested and eventually kind of sold me on this idea of launching the digital component. And I don't know, I just did it. I have done a lot of random things in my life. And and that was one of them. And it was interesting. So I launched the E-League, mm-hmm. which is on Turner. Counter-Strike was the, yeah. the first game we did for the first two years. I just thought when when people were f- switching channels, and they saw like, People trying to kill the terrorists or not like they'd be like oh I don't know anything about gaming but I understand that I was like yeah. if they saw League they would never have any idea what's going on I actually we signed a whole bunch of kind of let's play gamers most of the Minecraft gamers I think mm-hmm. were the biggest and kind of most brand friendly uh, at that point and I developed and and helped sign kind of some of the biggest YouTubers in the world so in a way it had nothing to do with anything <laughs> else that I had done before but I did have good kind of platform, YouTube, Instagram knowledge, and it was super cool. It also exposed me to sports, which led Mm. me to start overtime as well as a whole bunch of other things. So I'm really glad that I did it because I kind of understood how they, you know, that kind of entertainment content business worked from the back end side of it. But it was just random. Like it was never on my punch card.
0: So I remember actually like being excited about E-League when I first heard about it, but let's go. most people that um, <laughs> were probably my peers were not as excited, but I was a supporter. Just want well, so really we know. spent
1: a lot of time. We were like, at the end of the day, we were like, let's do, because we were like, so I think older people were like, wouldn't it be amazing if video games were on television. Yeah. I think the thinking was that your TV is actually bigger than your monitor. Like mm-hmm. it was literally like physical. Oh my God, <laughs> it's on TV. Yeah. And there were a whole bunch of people who were just kind of like, who cares? Like people watch this on their computer, like they don't need it to be on TV for right. validation. So we ended up like the first four, like Monday through Thursday was on Twitch and Friday was on television. And I'd say it was an experiment. It it, it didn't totally work sometimes you know some corny tv show would crush us in the ratings mm-hmm. and then sometimes some crazy thing would happen like some brazilian team would play counter-strike and all of a sudden the ratings would double and they're right. like wow i have no idea so many <laughs> people cared about that team i think casting was still somewhat nascent at mm-hmm. that point i think when Fortnite was in the heat of their like you know, Fortnite World Cup and Championship Series, they actually had good casters and they did Mm -hmm. interesting stuff. I'll never forget the first time that I saw a cast for the International, for TI, for Dota 2, and they had nine different streams. (laughs) Eight of them were in different languages and one of them was called the Noob Stream. (laughs) Um, And I talked to people in sports now and they're like, oh, we're gonna have different broadcasts. And I was like, bro, (laughs) he's been doing that for like 10 years. I think it was interesting. I, I think that Drone Racing League was another thing. It wasn't a video game, but yeah. people are like, oh, you know, nerds are going to love drones flying yeah. around. They got like a TV deal like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure everything is perfect to watch on TV. And I don't think that traditional sports broadcast networks have found a lot of success in anything other than NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. hockey, kind of the traditional sports there. But it was a bold venture by Turner for sure. They built a whole studio yeah. there and I was super glad to be part of it.
0: All right. So let's move on finally to overtime, which is what is occupying your time today. So I know you touched on it briefly you know, at the start of the podcast, but just quickly, what is overtime and what is sort of unique about it and why is overtime able to succeed today in a market where there are just so many different ways for consumers to watch sports?
1: Yeah. So we started overtime because it was clear while at Endeavor and talking to sports leagues and teams that, you know, there was a generation of younger fans who just did not consume sports on television at the Mm -hmm. same rate as a previous generation. And especially if those sports were on cable and they didn't have cable subscriptions and, and stuff like that. And that they were not just mobile focused, but, you know, it was like, okay, there was a crazy game last night and like, you know, LeBron blocked Iguodala from behind and whatever else, but it's like, oh, cool. I went and I looked on the internet and I saw the highlight that looked dope, you know? And so it was clear that every generation kind of needed its own media platform and the sports is a really cool vertical and we're like, that's going to be us. And so we we started to build basically the biggest sports brand in the world Mm -hmm. that had a resonance with with the audience and I think there's a couple of things you know people like to talk about what we covered we covered a lot of kind of high school basketball these kind of players right before they went into the NBA and they were electric and dynamic here's Zion Williamson's and, and that was a huge part of it but ultimately like all the things that I kind of understood from from gaming honestly from people in music, you know, there are bands that don't even have record labels that tour in twenty Pearl Jam, people will pull out, you know, all kinds of stuff like that around, I think, community engagement. And we're like, we want to build a sports brand that stands for something. We don't want to build a publication that tells you what happened in the game or the right. score or who to sit and start. And so, you know, we built... Overtime and overtime was a sports platform. People would say, Shout out to overtime. You know, they we had a hand signal where people make the oh, uh, we made apparel, we answered a quarter of a million direct messages every year. We pulled up to thousands of high school gyms, you know, and t shirts and film stuff. And it was this very different kind of almost cultural rather than digital approach. And then the, the content itself, like, we were really one of the first people in sports where we would put stuff on overtime that had nothing to do with sports. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, you'd post something that was hilarious or something that happened in the classroom or, or if it had to do with sports, um, you know, I saw one of these recently, it was like, you know, some little kid was running down the field in football and his mom was running next to him, screaming <laughs> at him like, cut, cut, let's go. And it was like, it's like, the caption's like, mom's got this under control or whatever. And it was this idea that like sports was so big that it was infusing culture and you could mm-hmm. go back and forth. And that was really different. I mean, when we started kind of really broadening the purview of what we would cover, what we would talk about, you'd go to all of our competitors and it'd be like, Every single post would just be a sports highlight that came from TV. The crazy thing is that part of the reason we did that is we didn't have any sports rights and they had all the sports rights. Now you look at Sports Center, House of Highlights, they literally look like overtime. I went to a presentation by House of Highlights, and they're like, we've broadened the aperture of sports and they showed three videos that they literally took off of our account yeah. and claimed that they had credit <laughs> for them. And it's kind of crazy to think that a bunch of people who were really outsiders to sports, very small, I mean, you know, three years ago, we didn't have even 20 players. We're so influential in this one way Mm -hmm. that like every sports account in the world looks like overtime Mm -hmm. now. You know, my brother in law is like, I see the same video on the Sports Center as I do in overtime. I'm like, and I try to tell him, look, ours was six hours ago and yeah, four yeah. hours ago. He doesn't care about that. <laughs> so it's crazy to think about how influential we did. So we're we're constantly thinking about how we're going to change the game around that and keep the competition caught short. And the second thing is that you know, we really built our platform around using the iPhone to film sports. Mm -hmm. So we have our own tech platform where we have a special app for the iPhone where it allows you to capture highlights really quickly and send them up to the cloud and tag them and do all this other stuff. And people got distracted. I think they thought like overtime is a bunch of UGC. (laughs) Well, anyone who films for us, we pay them and they're in our network. Mm -hmm. But, But what I'm trying to say is like where people stood And the way that that content looked on their phone, it had a certain feel. And it was so different that if I gave you a pro camera and told you to go to a game and film it and we put it on Twitter or Snap or Instagram or anything, it would perform worse. And all of a sudden I started to see NBA teams and European teams Mm -hmm. make their media not look like it was from TV, look like it was from overtime. And And again, it's kind of like, I'm kind of in awe of the fact that like, we just did this shit to survive. Mm -hmm. And yet both the nature of the content and how it was filmed became so influential across sports. And it's not like we were like, we're going to come up with new things to post and new ways to create content through the iPhone that feels more immediate. It was just like, we just did whatever worked and whatever we could do because we were underfunded and scrappy. (laughs) And we ended up having this like massive, impact. And I'd say like the third element of that is like elevating high school sports. So it's so funny to me. It's like ESPN, who I would consider a a competitor, you know, they're like, oh shit, High school basketball is huge because of overtime. So they mm-hmm. went out and they signed a bunch of random high school basketball games to put them on ESPN yeah. too. I don't think it really did anything. And they're like, oh, social media is so big. We're gonna hire Omar who created House of Highlights away from Bleacher Report to ESPN. Well, I don't know what Omar does. He spends most of the time building his own account on TikTok. So I don't really <laughs> think that did anything. And it's like, I don't think they understood that like putting a game or hiring a person. Whereas like we were building, we were building almost like our own little like world, our own mm-hmm. little metaverse around overtime, where we'd have like fifty different accounts and they'd talk to each other, and people would put overtime in their name and they'd tag people in the thing. Like I don't think there was really any understanding of that. And I think in all of those things, what I loved about Draw Something was that like we made a game for people who didn't play games. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget I was getting my car serviced. And I said to the guy, I said, oh, do you play games? Because I was hoping he had to draw yeah. something on his phone. And he said, no, nah, I don't play games on the phone. And He said, why? I said, oh, I made this game draw something. He goes, oh, I love that game. I play it all the time. <laughs> right. So what is that mindset of somebody who doesn't play right. games, but then play my games? And similarly, it's like, how is that mindset to create something where like, do you care about high school sports? I don't care about high school sports. Right. I mean, well, maybe when I went to high school. But now it's like, oh, I don't care about high school sports. Oh, I love Zion. I watch him on overtime all the time. And so if you could think about you know, how you can expand the aperture, how you can create culture, how you can create a bigger potential audience, I really think Fortnite did that in the sense that there was no blood. <laughs> when you create something that is a little cartoony, you kind of open it. And it's not guys with fucking AK-47s running through shooting and like blood and then Mm -hmm. like somebody teabagging them on top of it. It's like, you really opened up the aperture to all of these people. And their parents weren't like, they were like, definitely don't play, you know, Grand Theft and whatever, but you can play this. And it wasn't an an accident that when you snipe somebody in Fortnite, there was no blood. And I think that, people don't think about that a lot. They think about the mechanics, but the way you're able to increase almost like market size for any type of product, whether it's gaming or a cultural product, I I think is huge.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think even today when people describe that Graphic style in other games. They describe it as like the Fortnite style of graphics, right? And when you think yeah. of the dances that became popular, you know, that people were, were doing on Fortnite, Will Smith actually has a rap line where he talks about how the Carlton dance is done in Fortnite and how, you know, it's like a testament to how, how big he's gotten. You know, but to your point, these things have just become so big culturally. Uh, following up on the cultural side of things, now, over time has a pretty notoriously like celebrity and athlete heavy list of investors. Right. So there's like Drake and Kevin Durant and Mello and a whole lot of other folks. Is this intentional
1: and related? I would say it's probably, it's definitely intentional. Mm-hmm. It, it's the intersection of a couple things. One is that it's either Drake or Kanye is a, a line about an angel round. Kanye. In, in one of the songs. Yeah. So like, there's no doubt that, Angel investing and whatever. So there's a huge appetite. And there's no doubt that, you know, people like to invest in things that they understand. Mm -hmm. I think the flip side is that for us, I mean, six percent of active MBA players are investors in overtime. And so that is a stat. (laughs) It's crazy, right? And so some of that is like, you know. Devin Booker, Zach Levine, mm-hmm. like th- these people are all awesome. I'm not going to pretend like they know me or I chill with them. Yeah. Some of them, I, some of them like mellow, I know, but mm-hmm. a lot of them I don't, but it's validation. It right. means something, to the players we work with. And so it's definitely intentional, mm-hmm. like, we're big in basketball because basketball is where a lot of culture is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are definitely more NBA players who love to game. Yeah. Josh Hart, De'Aaron yeah. Fox, like other than than I think in, in some of the other sports. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, if I can get them involved because their name carries weight because of all those things, I'm I'm absolutely gonna do it.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, and I wanted to spend some time talking about overtime elite. So what is overtime elite? Why is this so important and how does it fit into the conversation, you know, just around college athletes now being able to get
1: paid? Yeah. So Overtime Elite is a brand new basketball league that we launched. You know, we wanted to kind of have an overtime league. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, it became clear that the opportunity was to, to launch a league with all the same players that we covered on overtime. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to, to launch a league, but it's another thing to make sure that you have a disruptive opportunity. And so there was a kind of input output disruptive opportunity on the input side. It was clear that there were a lot of players in high school who wanted to get paid. And when we launched NIL, wasn't a thing, name image likeness. Now players can get paid in college But for sure, there are definitely people in 11th and 12th grade, um, 17, 18, who want to get paid. And for some reason, they can't get paid. And it seems kind of unfair, unjust. There's no doubt that big college systems profit off athletes. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that, you know, the biggest sports, football and basketball are predominantly played by African-American athletes. And yet, you know, they're not always getting the benefit from that. And so- it seemed like A, there was an opportunity where athletes wanted to make and earn money that made sense. Mm-hmm. B, you saw people like Lomelo and and others kind of hacking the system, not going to college, going abroad. Yeah. And so it was clear that the the traditional path did not make sense for everyone. And mm-hmm. and obviously when one and done meaning right now you have to wait till you're 19 to enter the NBA draft and you, you have to play basically a year of college. Mm-hmm. When that goes away, potentially in two years, it's going to be clear that, you know, we're going to be in the right place in the right time. And I think the third thing is that, you know, we don't in this country, like we're the only country in the world that has like competitive high school sports. Like, yeah, you know, think about soccer, right? Like Ronaldo, Messi, Messi wasn't like in 11th grade and then he didn't go D1 to like Kentucky to play soccer. Like these guys are pros. Same for Luka Doncic in the NBA. And in fact, three of the top five players, including the MVP of last year, including the win, the the series MVP, were all players who grew up outside of the United States, who participated in a completely different system to learn how to play. Um, And we just didn't have that. And by the way, we have it in other space. If you're amazing at the violin, like you don't go D1 to Michigan right. for violin, you go to Juilliard. And so it, it was it was pretty clear that there was there was a lot of demand and there was an option. And and the final thing I'll say on the input side was that, you know, we have a number of former MBA executives and team executives who are part of our program and run our program. And one of them was saying to me, you know, when I was at blank team. The first six players I drafted, none of them played a full season. Mm-hmm. They all had lingering injuries. They didn't know how to jump, they whatever, injured. Mm-hmm. It's like the opportunity to work with 17, 18 year old athletes, we're gonna be in the NBA in a year and teach them this stuff and prehab and train and whatever else and diet like means that they're going to have better and longer careers so so on the input side it was clear that there was a different model needed and by the way i'm pro college i feel Mm -hmm. like if you want to go play in college you should play in college if you want to play in the g league if you want to just work out like for me it was just about introducing more options i feel like that's how you empower people is you give them choice and on the output side we were like the mba is is amazing. Like it's incredible product. So is the NFL. I'm a huge fan of both, but it also seemed clear, like, you know, maybe there was room for a league that was dope in its own way. Like mm-hmm. it had next generation players. Um, it, it, it talked about, you know, sports a little different way It blended on court and off court as dope as the NBA is. And as much as I love, you know marv albert and i love Mm -hmm. reggie miller like the style of calling games hasn't really changed the style of showing games hasn't really changed the way for fans to participate hasn't really changed and i think we have an opportunity to take everything we've learned from video games and every other type of Mm -hmm. medium and music videos and like put them into basketball and see if we can make like a ridiculously dope media product that people will love
0: you know it's just a fantastic mission and you know truly is going to be game changing uh but shifting gears so you know you have obviously been all over the place you know you've lived more lives already than i think a lot of other people have doing things that are completely you know on paper disjointed and so why was this the path that you took was it just like you know different things took you in different directions and how has this impacted your perspective personally and professionally?
1: I don't know. I just never really knew what I wanted to do. So I just did a whole bunch of things and like kept going. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, lack of focus, short attention span, desire to learn. Like every time I would do some, get an education, I'm like, so interesting. And then I'd kind of like to have a game. So interesting with my parents are college professors. So I, I don't know. I think that I think it's unusual, like, I don't think I'm unusual, but a lot of people say to me like, wow, oh, your career's all over the place. It's so many different places. And that seems so unusual, but I think it, it, it should be more usual. We just get tracked into things and we're told that we can't do different things. It's like, I tell my students at NYU, like what you major in for the most part, doesn't really matter. Like, mm. I can't tell you what anybody who works at Overtime, what the hell they majored in. Like, <laughs> but, but I, that message, I'm like a radical for communicating that message. And so for me, I could say I've done the same thing. I've like been in positions to create culture and ideas and mm. empower people and that's very general, but mm-hmm. yeah, they've been in really different fields. So to me, it's been super energizing and fun. And I'll, I'll never forget, I have, a, I have a friend of mine who moved to India. So I wasn't in super in touch with him. He was like, I think he had like an online music thing he did. And he like moved to India and started some fashion company. Mm-hmm. And then he called me and said, oh, I have this new startup. And he pulled up and it was like, I don't really know what it did. It seemed like it was like Soda Stream. It was like some mm-hmm. kind of like, carbonated beverage I don't know and I I remember I said to him I was like dude like what the hell do you know about carbonated beverage you like do radio and Indian fashion and he said to me deadpan he's like I'm an entrepreneur that's what I do I go learn about new things and I find new ways to look at it and I start companies in that I was like hell yeah like that that's that's amazing like that made me feel like You know, I don't know, maybe in my next life I'm gonna start an Italian shoe company, (laughs) even though I don't know anything about shoes. So I I hope that we should all be open enough to have as many of those opportunities. And look, I'm somebody whose parents got a PhD, graduated, Mm -hmm. got a teaching job, stayed at the same university, did the same thing their entire lives until they retired. Mm -hmm. And they loved it too. So, you know, the world's big and diverse and complicated.
0: So, you know, I just wanted to ask a concluding question and and wrap up here, but As you look forward, how do you want to impact the sports media landscape? What does it look like in the future? And what else are some of the major things you want to accomplish?
1: I'd say that's a very generous question, because it assumes like, I'm this awesome person who has amazing vision, who wants to do awesome stuff. And in a weird way, I'm like incredibly not existential. Like my son was asking me, like, what what do you want to leave as your legacy? And I was like, I don't care. I'm dead. Like, he's like, well, what are people going to think about you? I'm like, who cares? I'm dead. Like, I don't know. Maybe they're not going to think about me at all. I'm okay yeah. with that. So to me, it's like, my singular focus has been like, I want to make shit that people care about. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make a game that I could walk to somebody on their iPhone and sneak up behind them and they were playing my game. I I mean, you know, when I worked for Richard Branson and, and Virgin, I kind of like reinvigorated Virgin's move into music festivals in the U.S. And. You know, I created from scratch these massive music festivals. It was like Kanye and Lil Wayne and mm-hmm. Smashing Pumpkins and The Who and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And to me, the idea that I was like standing on the stage with Richard Branson, The Who were playing, there were eighty thousand people in the audience, and I just thought, like, shit, I did this. Like, I didn't do it, but I did. It. I lit the match. Mm-hmm. Like, if I didn't work there, this might not have happened. And all these people are enjoying this thing. And I made something that people are experiencing in the world and it makes them happy and it's fun. And that's really about as far as I've ever gotten. (laughs) So it's like if I made this like kind of media platform and and people are like, I love Overtime. I watch this shit all the time. You guys DM me once or I love your league or I played your game or like oh yeah, I saw there was somebody, my niece texted me. She's like, somebody in my class in eighth grade has an overtime hoodie on. Like that's about as far as I got. And To (laughs) me, that's that's pretty dope.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So normally I'd say I'm rooting for you, but since it doesn't matter, I'll just say (laughs) 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 thanks for taking the time. This was a really fun one, Dan. I
1: appreciate you, Chris.